3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Good morning, Inez. Good morning, Leela. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, how are we all doing today? A bit sweaty yesterday. I didn't realize how hot it was and I didn't check... Uh, <laughs> I didn't check when I went outside to the post office and I wore a hoodie, which was a huge mistake. Oh my God. And uh, there was, I was waiting at the tram stop and there was just so much sweat dripping. And I was thinking, I really should have just checked the weather and planned ahead. So that's a cautionary tale to plan ahead. Well, you know, the thing is, um, I think for a couple of years, Bureau of Meteorology's like game really fell off. And so people stopped believing it. But I continued checking it feeling like the universe was gonna rewrite the course um i just do it every day because i'm gonna be on my bike and i want to know if i need to prepare for anything but oh my gosh it was muggy it was muggy. yeah it was like a sauna out there yeah um when i was riding home a guy pulled up next to me and he was like it's actually not that bad today it's not as bad as i thought it would be and i was like what the hell are you talking about, what are you talking about? <laughs> um but yeah we've got A massive show, as usual. Um, A lot of important stuff to cover this week. Um, All live interviews, so what a treat for you, the listener. Uh, First up, we're going to hear from Karen Fletcher, who's the executive officer at Flat Out. And Karen's joining us to discuss Victoria's parole system, unpacking issues with the opaque parole process and the compounding impact that stringent preconditions have on successful outcomes for people who are incarcerated in the state of Victoria. Now, our conversation occurs in the context of a decision made on Monday at the directions hearing into the death in custody of Yamaji, Nungar, Wongai and Pitanjara woman Heather um, Calgary in Sunshine Hospital in November 2021 while she was incarcerated at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre. And that directions hearing established that Victoria's parole system is going to be under scrutiny as part of the coronial inquest into Miss Calgary's death. And that inquest is going to commence on April 29 this year. Yeah, really important interview. I can't wait to hear about it. And next up, we'll have Hung, who will chat to us about the non-binary and women of colour caucus happening today from 6 to 9 p.m. And the caucus will focus on experiences of participating in activism and politics and state, you know, come with an intention to get cosy with your wildest dreams for a more just world. And the interview will discuss power sharing and marginalisation within social movements and what it means to struggle with one another. And after that, we're going to be joined by community organizer Mohammed Helmi, who's speaking with us about the development of an open letter from a wide range of individuals and organizations in Victoria's Muslim community to boycott this year's Premier's Iftar in the face of the Victorian government's inaction in response to Israel's genocidal siege on Gaza. And as of yesterday, there have been pretty widespread calls within the Victorian and New South Wales Muslim communities to boycott both Labour Party Premier's Ramadan events. And then we'll hear from Monica, who is a unionist and member for Australian Services Union for Palestine and has worked in the community and social services sector coming up to 10 years. 
Monica speaks to us about how ASU members working in social and community services took unprotected industrial action and walked out of work for Palestine last Thursday, the 22nd at 1 p.m. Now, workers walked off work. They protested outside the Victorian Council of Social Service to demand that peak bodies and workplaces break their silence. Many who claim to be human rights and social justice focused who have largely remained silent about the genocide. And finally, we are joined by Kerap Mara and Gundaj Mara, traditional owner and Europe Justice Commissioner Travis Lovett to discuss historic and current economic injustices experienced by First Nations people in so-called Australia and some of the ways the Commission seeks to identify solutions. Commissioner Lovett maintains a strong connection with his community and culture and holds a deep knowledge of the history of First Nations people in Victoria. And the Europe Justice Commission is Victoria's first truth-telling commission. Great. And um, we're going to head to a CSA now and come back to you with headlines. But stay tuned. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Hi, everyone. My name's Robbie Thorpe. I'm with 3CR Community Radio. Every year we have a subscription drive. It's a way of supporting our organisation maintain itself through the year. And we rely on the support of the, the community. One way to do that is to subscribe become a member, become part of this organisation itself. Get in contact with 3CR. You can go to the website, 3cr.org.au, or you can ring on 9419 3CR ensures that our voices, Aboriginal voices, are heard on this radio station. So it's a good way of supporting Aboriginal people as well by becoming a subscriber for 3CR Community Radio. And that was the wonderful Uncle Robbie Thorpe encouraging all of you to make sure to renew your subscriptions or to subscribe if you haven't already. Um, It is just an honor and a privilege to be working at a station or volunteering rather at a station where Uncle Robbie does his amazing show, Bunjil's Fire. Um, So please make sure to renew your subscriptions or to subscribe if you haven't already. These are the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of February. Organizations delivering food, water, and essential items are systemically being denied access to Gaza by Israeli occupation forces who are shooting and bombing humanitarian convoys. The Palestine Red Crescent Society has suspended all medical operations in Gaza for the next 48 hours due to the failure of the Israeli occupation forces to ensure the safety of medical teams as well as wounded and sick Palestinians. A senior UN humanitarian aid official said that one quarter of Gaza's population, almost 600,000 people, is one step away from famine. Meanwhile, Prime Minister Albanese has doubled down on suspending funding to the United Nations Relief and Works Agency in Palestine and has refused to give a time frame for reinstating the funds when challenged during question time. Calls continue to grow for for the Australian government to reinstate funds, suspend military assistance to Israel and call for a ceasefire. Also in headlines... A decision by Mardi Gras organisers in Morani or Sydney to uninvite cops from Mardi Gras has been partially overturned after the police and organisers reached an agreement yesterday. New South Wales police will be able to attend out of uniform while federal police remain uninvited. Long-standing calls for police to be uninvited from Mardi Gras increased last week after Senior Constable Bo Lamar Condon was charged with the murder of Jesse Braid and Luke Davies. 
Lamar, who was previously under internal investigation after he tasered a First Nations man in the face three years ago using a police-issued firearm to commit the alleged murders. Also this week, Senator Lydia Thorpe has called on the Albanese government to establish a strong national police oversight and accountability framework. She said that until police departments nationwide submit to independent scrutiny and accountability, they have no place participating in LGBTIQA plus or First Nations community events. And in related news, with a warning for First Nations listeners, this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. Senator Thorpe has also pointed to evidence presented to the Kumanjayi Walker coronial inquest by former police officer Zachary Rolfe, who killed Mr Walker while on duty. The evidence presented to the court this week details a vulgar culture of racism in the Northern Territory Police, which Senator Thorpe says is the latest evidence of a culture of impunity within police departments nationwide. The court heard that Rolf used his personal phone to contact weaponry suppliers to buy accessories for the guns used by police. The coronial inquest continues this week with Zachary Rolf in the witness box answering questions about the shooting and his use of racist language in text messages prior to the shooting. In other news this week, Indonesian Defence Minister Prabowo Subianto, who's set to become Indonesia's next president, met with his Australian counterpart Richard Marles to discuss the defence relationship between Australia and Indonesia. Meanwhile, West Papuan advocates and activists are calling out the meeting where, when asked about Australians supporting a free West Papua, Marles said he would not engage in discussions about independence movements. Indonesian authorities have long targeted Papuan activists for their peaceful expression, with protests being met with arbitrary arrests and excessive force from the police. Following the national elections two weeks ago, protesters in Indonesia are calling for the election authority to stop Subianto, a former general and leader of the Special Forces, or Kopassas, from taking office after he claimed victory based on unofficial tallies. Finally in headlines, with another warning that this headline contains mention of a First Nation person who has died. The Victorian Coroner's Court have this week determined that an inquest into the death of Yamaji Nunga Wongi Pitajanara, woman has died in police custody in 2021, will examine prison healthcare and parole law. Mother of three, Heather Calgary, died at Sunshine Hospital after being found in a critical condition by her sister at Dame Phyllis Frost Centre Prison in Nam West. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service, who is supporting Miss Calgary's family, said the delays in her parole application and the lack of support for Miss Calgary's to access suitable accommodation will be looked at in the inquest. Over the last two days, Victorian government has made the parole system increasingly punitive and difficult, which has had a disproportionate impact on First Nations people. The Victorian Aboriginal Legal Service said in press statement, quote, Heather's family have waited so long to get to the point. They deserve answers and justice. And Victoria's parole system is a disaster. It makes it harder for people to be supported in the community, discriminates against people who don't have access to housing, and steals away people's lives. Now again, if you know these I know that these headlines can be distressing and that one three yarn, that's one three yarn, is always available as well as yarning safe and strong, which is also Victoria specific. 
And these have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 29th of February. You're listening to 3CR. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Australia's energy market is broken. Right, but Copower gives you better energy? Nope, no retailer can control where the electrons they buy off the grid come from. But as a Copower member, you can vote on where 100% of revenue goes. So instead of corporate profit, your energy bill builds the world you want to be a part of. That's cool. Learn more about the solidarity economy and Copower today and take the power back. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter. We know you love listening to 3CR, but we also know that many of you haven't downloaded the Community Radio Plus app yet. The app lets you tune in anywhere and share the station with your friends. So, show the love and share the love and search Community Radio Plus wherever you get your apps. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're about to jump into our first interview for the day with Karen Fletcher, who's the executive officer of Flat Out, and who's joined us to discuss Victoria's parole system to unpack some of the issues with the opaque parole application process and the compounding impact that stringent preconditions have on successful outcomes for people who are incarcerated in the state of Victoria. Good morning, Karen. Good morning. Thanks very much for making the time. Um, let's start off by talking a bit about the parole system in Victoria and the application of non-parole periods. So I understand some listeners might be less familiar with what non-parole periods and parole eligibility means. So could you maybe break down these terms and their stated functions? Sure. So parole is actually a part of a person's sentence. When a person is sentenced, if they're sentenced to two years or over, the, the court has to make a non-parole period um, which is the period that they have to stay within the prison. And then parole, the parole period is a period that they spend in the community but under strict conditions that are um, imposed and supervised by uh, Victoria Corrections, so community corrections officers. Some people would call them parole officers. Um, so it's actually part of the sentence. Mm. Yeah, and I think this is uh, important to to sort of contextualise the conversation um, because it's not that, you know, it's not that somebody uh, has, has finished their, their custodial sentence, but, uh, you know, they're still sort of under the, the supervision and oversight of, of the state um, while out in the community. But um, as we're going to discuss, this is complicated by uh, the nature of the parole laws in Victoria. So Flat Out is one of a select few organisations um, and part of a growing chorus of independent voices of people with experiences of incarceration and their supporters that have been raising serious concerns about the parole system in Victoria. 
How does the parole board here operate in terms of the transparency of the process, the frequency of successful applications? Because I understand this has fallen pretty drastically over the past decade or so. Yes. Well, um, access to parole has become extremely difficult in Victoria uh, due to a a number of um, changes that have been made, you know, sort of law and order style politics policies that have really reduced access to parole. It used to be that sort of a quarter of people leaving prison were leaving on parole. Um, as, lo- as recently as sort of 2006, um, and now it's less than 4% who are actually uh, leaving prison on parole. It's become extremely difficult to access. Um, and yeah, the parole board, the parole decision-making process has become more and more of a black box. Uh, difficult for people in prison to know how to access an application for parole. It used to be that it was automatic that people would be considered for parole on their eligibility date. Uh, Now there's just a very opaque process uh, and a lot of people in prison uh, don't even have information about how to to apply or are told that there's no point applying. Um, So it's become less and less likely for people to be released on parole and to do their full time in Mm. the prison. Yeah, and and I I understand that at some point in time there was a a move from the automatic consideration for parole to now a process where people have to apply. Is that correct? That's right. That was a change that was made in 2013. Um, There was a very high-profile murder of Jill Ma in September 2012, and that resulted in the Napstein government uh, commissioning the Callanan Review, uh, which was a... um, uh, resulted in a crackdown on parole... And one of the recommendations of Callanan that was implemented was that there should be no automatic consideration for parole on the eligibility date people would have to apply. Uh, And the result of that has been um, that there have been a lot of people who haven't even applied, partly because they are not really made to understand the process or they're told by prison officers or corrections that they've got no chance, so Mm. no need to apply. Um, Perhaps also because, you know, so many people in prison... Um, have got, uh, you know, literacy issues, language issues, psychosocial issues. Um, so without a lot of support, which is not available, um, they're, you know, not in a position to do the extremely complicated um, paperwork mm. that's involved in, in making an application for parole. Yeah, and I can imagine just sharing information between other people that are incarcerated and understanding that people's applications have been knocked back acts as a, you know, a, a disincentivizing force there too. Now, I wanted to touch on the intersection of the parole system with Australia's rolling housing crisis because Flatouts had a central involvement in the Homes Not Prisons campaign that some of our listeners might be familiar with. And I understand one of the key preconditions of release on parole is that a person has access to, quote, suitable and stable accommodation, end quote. But how does housing availability and affordability impact the women that Flatout supports? Yes, well, I mean, our mission... Our role is that we support women, trans and gender diverse people to get out and stay out of prison. Parole is one way that, um, you know, people can get out of prison. It's a pretty difficult um, way because when you're under parole conditions, you're still under sentence, still supervised, and the conditions that people have on parole are uh, extraordinary, you know, in terms of these days mostly wearing an ankle bracelet and the constant sort of surveillance uh, under curfew, um, and you know, a lot of people actually 
can't make it through that process. We we, we support uh, folks who have, you know, appointments every day as co- as conditions of their parole, plus the ankle black bracelet and the curfews and all sorts of, of requirements, which makes it very difficult. But the single, probably single most um, uh, important factor that's r- reducing people's access to parole is that yeah, it's, there's a requirement since the Callanan Review that people have suitable and stable accommodation. And with the housing crisis, uh, there is no suitable and stable accommodation. Um, you know, we've got this waiting list of more than 100,000 individuals for public housing, and really public housing is the only affordable housing uh, for people coming out of prison. Um, and, you know, the other sort of accommodation options that are available are neither suitable nor stable. You know, they're not allowed to go to a rooming house or a crummy motel, which is the kind of accommodation that most people coming out of prison have as their only option. Mm. They can't couch surf or, or stay, you know, back in a, the violent home or the or circumstances that they were in um, might have led to, you know, what's ended them up in prison. Um, and so... Uh, they're just not eligible. So the housing crisis is basically meaning it's a big reason why the prison population just keeps growing and growing. Yeah, absolutely. And it it is this, you know, it's this horrible double bind that people who are incarcerated in this state are are put into because uh, you might apply for parole and you don't have access to affordable housing. And, and Many, many people who are incarcerated are in poverty, who are that are on social security payments. And when they come out, you know, it's not like they've had the opportunity to build up a great amount of savings for bond. But also there are these requirements around um, where they can live, who they can live with. And then the option is you get knocked back for parole. And when you get to the end of your sentence, then you just get turfed out onto the street. And it doesn't really matter to the prison where you go. Right, on the street or back into, you know, a violent uh, relationship or um, home um, at the end of the sentence. And, and yes, that's the the absolute irony of this, that there's all this attention paid to, you know, people's eligibility for parole from the point of view of community safety, but no consideration of um, what happens to people when they're released at their full time. So instead of doing their three years, they'll do this, you know, and released on parole, they'll do their full six years. Uh, an extra three years in prison, and at the end of that time, homeless um, mm. and without support. I mean, the, one of the ironies here is that parole was supposed to be, you know, in this in this system, uh, about improving community safety by providing people with a sort of transition out of prison with with help, um, particularly to get housed uh, and to you know find a, a livable source of income uh, and all the things that you know, give people the best chance of actually establishing themselves in the community. Um, but, you know, the, the actual result is that people are just doing longer in the prison system and then uh, and that support is just not available, the housing's not available. Um, so it is a huge issue for the people mm. themselves who've been in prison but for the community as well. Yeah. I, I should also say, you know, that parole is um, becoming less and less um, of an option for people in prison because of what I was saying about the you know, very um, uh, sort of onerous conditions that people live under when they're on parole. Uh, and so many people are returned to prison from parole because they break a curfew or, you know, have a drink when they're, they're on a no-drinking condition or, you know, small sort of things that send them back up in prison. 
Um, but for women and, and for trans people in particular, any chance to get out of the prison system because the prison system is just so horrific and harmful um, is important. And, th- and that's why we uh, you know, are calling for um, fair, better and fairer uh, systems of parole and um, availability of parole housing. Mm. Uh, and for women in particular who are, you know, many, many, the majority are parents. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's their chance to get back to their children. And that's a, a, we see, what we see is a lot of the time, that's why women are prepared to undergo this incredible process uh, just to try to be reunited and safe and together with their children um, in the community. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I mean, and then, you know, this, this feeds uh, violence and harm downstream as well if... if um, you know, mums are kept away from their families. Children can be then arbitrarily removed from their custody. Um, now, I want to come back to something that you you touched on there about looking at, you know, changes to the parole system or uh, that, that might, you know, improve outcomes for people that are really suffering under this regime. So when it comes to the question of prison reform, organizations like Flat Out work from an abolitionist theory of change. And so you'll no doubt be very attentive to the need for amendments that don't really perpetuate or entrench the structural violence of the criminal legal system. In view of that, what kind of changes would you like to see in Victoria's parole system that kind of align with this approach and don't end up uh, accidentally taking us backwards? Very important question. Of course, yes, we are an abolitionist organisation and we recognise that the prison system itself is causing enormous harm to the people who are in it and to the whole community. Um, so it's very important to have a look at this from the perspective of how do we actually reduce the use of imprisonment and eventually, uh, you know, create alternatives to imprisonment. And look, the key issue here is that the biggest block to um, parole and to any form of successful release from prison is the availability of housing. That's why we were, you know, sounding and involved in the Homes Not Prisons campaign. That's why we were involved in the campaign against the demolition of the public housing towers. Um, Housing is the number one issue if we're going to actually provide alternatives to imprisonment because people need a place to live um, that's safe um, and they need a, you know, a livable source of income. Um, We're talking about people in the prison system who are overwhelmingly come from poverty, come from trauma, uh, self-medicating for that trauma, come from communities that have been absolutely ripped apart by colonisation. This impacts Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people far more than than everybody else because, you know, they're much more likely to be homeless when they go into prison, much more likely to be homeless when they come out um, and to have come from communities that, as I said, you know, have had children removed, has had enormous intergenerational trauma. Um, any uh, real um, efforts to reduce incarceration and reduce um, harm in the community from um, it just requires a huge investment in housing. Um, uh, if, if there was housing available and we could do our job, which is to help people to get out and stay out of prison, um, we would see prison populations reduce enormously. And that's our goal. Mm, Absolutely. And, you know, I guess looking at these sort of uh, challenging, these these structural violences, it is a, it's a big ask. um, But 
the the theory uh, of change underpinning this work, um, trying to make sure that we're reducing prison populations over time and actually supporting people to stay connected in their communities. Um, it really seems to be doing the important work that prisons claim their rehabilitative function uh, performs, and yet um, we we know the sort of consequences of how the system actually works. Uh, Karen, well, there's the ultimate yeah. irony here, right? Because the parole system is supposed to be about that. It's supposed to be about uh, giving people the opportunity to resettle in the community safely. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's not fulfilling that function because there just isn't the uh, support there for people you know, to, to be able to live safe lives, re-establish themselves, get a house. Uh, look after their kids, be safe and together, re, you know, re-contact with their community, build their community. And it's not just the case in Victoria. That's the case, where, you know, mm. in the Northern Territory where we're seeing these issues. Um, the prisons themselves are just churning through, um, you know, uh, people in absolutely impossible situations and providing no um, answers to those. When the answer's staring us in the face, housing, support, you know, Livable incomes, childcare, healthcare—you mm-hmm. know, access to non-judgmental, non-surveilling healthcare for people who are who are self-medicating with alcohol or drugs. These things are the actual, um, you know, ways forward um, for dealing with the social issues that people are, you know, quite we're all concerned about. Uh, and yet, we still keep on going back to this thing of trapping people into an institution which is more harmful, more violent. Um, and, you know, it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to add there. But um, Karen, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us this morning. Thanks, Priya. All right. And that was Karen Fletcher, who's the executive officer of Flat Out, who joined us to discuss Victoria's parole system and unpack some of the issues with the opaque parole application process and the compounding impact that stringent preconditions have on successful outcomes for people who are incarcerated in the state of Victoria. It is 7.30 in the morning and you're listening to 3CR on 855 AM. 3CR is about community and we welcome your participation at the station. 3CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at 3CR. To find out more, go to 3cr.org.au and get in touch. They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. And welcome back to 3CR Thursday Breakfast. And next up we have Hung who will chat to us about the Non-Binary Women of Colour Caucus that is happening today from 6 to 9pm. 
The caucus will focus on experiences of participating in activism and politics and to come with an intention to get cosy and dream of a more just world. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Hu. Good morning. Good morning to all your listeners, Ines. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I'm wondering if like, we could start off with who you are and like, why you really wanted to put on this caucus today. I am the daughter of Vietnamese boat people. Um, I was born and raised on the lands of the Bunurong and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. And I'm a single mama in the western suburbs of Melbourne out this way. Um, I used to be a Green MP um, and I did some organising with the United Workers Union, uh, some anti-racism uh, training um, organisers, Democracy in Colour, and I'm currently working as the Greens National Grassroots Organiser. Yeah, amazing. Um, I, yeah, I was wondering, you know, when it comes to you know, bringing, you know, women and non-binary people of colour together in a room about sharing their experiences of activism or, yeah, in politics as well. I was wondering, yeah, what role do you think, like, gender and race and sexuality play and what it actually means to share power? Well, <laughs> that's a lot in this. Yeah, it is. Um, well, I guess um, the, the simple answer is we're discovering it by gathering these non-binary women of colour who are, you know, either in their private lives or in their actual paid work, um, activists or, you know, doing political organising like myself. Uh, and we're discovering it with each other. Uh, I, I, in my organising um, training that I, I run for different folks, uh, we talk about the Master's House, the roles of capitalism, patriarchy, supremacy and how they interlock and um, design this ridiculous operating system for human societies. I mean, I always say, you know, if we were to design the the way that humans organise ourselves from scratch, you wouldn't do it this way because it's so dumb. Mm. Um, the privileged a few at the expense of masses of people, disenfranchise a whole bunch of people and police the, the joy out of our bodies and our wildness. Um, and so, yeah, this is how we're discovering how to do it otherwise in a, in a space where there's no whiteies, um, not even um, spicy whites. Uh, white passing people, <laughs> and uh, and it's just been so incredible. Like a witch is coming. It's magical. It's radical. It's, um, and no one competes to speak uh, because we're just so curious about each other and so generous in the space. So um, we're hoping we ran it two weeks ago with twenty six uh, women and non binary people at the you know at four days notice. People gathered from across Mars. So tonight's one's going to be huge. I think. Um, knowing that there was a whole bunch of people who couldn't make it then and were really keen to join us. Yeah, definitely. I Yeah, I also wanted to maybe touch on another point, I guess following on from what you said. So often I think when it comes to a lot of these spaces, especially, you know, in the context of Palestine and state violence agents like police, mm. right now um, it's so easy as maybe, uh, you know, often in maybe in academia or sometimes when we're talking in our own circles to like really stick to like intellectualizing the problem and often yeah just sticking to the theory which is definitely important but sometimes we can you know miss out on what's happening in front of us decolonization is happening in front of us and also (laughs) you know what it means to have different forms of labor that are valued you know what does it mean to be queer trans non-binary women of color who are consistently consistently putting their bodies on the line putting their bodies at risk and who actually have the most to lose um so yeah I'm wondering if you can talk maybe a little bit about that kind of concession and what it means to um (laughs) not say oh yeah I will get tenure and then I'll be more radical 
Um, well, oh gosh, there's there's a lot to unpack there too. Um, in terms of uh, having the most to lose, we also have the most to gain because we've been so isolated and um, separated from each other. Like, how often have you been the only brown person in the village? You know, like in your um, community legal centre that you work at mm. or in the political party that you're um, organising with. Um, and that is a lot of labour. And when we've entered the space we did two weeks ago, all of that uh, mental gymnastics dropped away because we could just turn up as our whole selves. And we were curious as to how, the out, how other people navigated their beings in their own brown bodies um, in all these different contexts, in these very, very white patriarchal capitalist contexts. And to have that all stripped away, like, I mean, you asked me earlier, why do why did we put this on? Because I, I was struggling to understand myself in my own political organising. Um, I've been in the Greens for 17 years and I just still didn't feel seen. And I know by instinct, doing enough of this work out in the community is that when you get women together, things just start make, making sense and things just work. Um, and you spoke earlier about like really academic ways of knowing. That's a very white Western capitalist way, you know, to dominate and to only believe what's empirical and observable. Whereas there's so many knowledges um, in our own bodies, um, in our own life at the margins that we can share and um, prop each other up with. Uh, and that's purely what the, the, um, the space is for. I mean, a caucus, in its, by definition for me, is just a, a group of people gathering around shared interests to talk about whatever the hell we want. Um, a lot of like white folks are like, oh, okay, so you know, what are you going to do and what's going to come of it? I'm like, I don't know, and that's the exciting part. We're just going to gather people and we're going to talk and whoever turns up, we get to decide together what the hell um, is is worth uh, deliberating on and considering and and sharing about. Um, And it's been the most radical thing I've ever done. It's just been phenomenal. Yeah, I mean, having the space to like bring people together is always, you know, really uh, can be really invigorating um, and yeah. lots of like shared learning. Uh, so, yeah, I can definitely like understand that sentiment, too. Um, yeah, I also, you know, yeah, I think going back a little bit to the last question about like, yeah, I think different forms of labor um I think sometimes maybe people can feel like discouraged from, you know, taking more action uh, that maybe is more active or proactive. And a lot of that also comes down to like, oh, I don't know if I can participate in this or, but also when it comes to, yeah, when it comes to gender as well, a lot of the time, a lot like the kind of caring social support, getting food to people, making sure people are you know, sleeping well and checking in. Those are really, really important roles that I think sometimes get um, missed as well, particularly in, yeah, sometimes in organising and in social movements. So that was kind of, yeah, yeah, where I was coming from with that one. Yeah, so so true. Um, And, I mean, the place, the the space that we're organising is quite anarchic, but it's very intentional and it's very well facilitated, I would like to say, because I facilitated the last one. And our mate um, Adoree is going to facilitate this next one. It's going to be absolutely magical. Um, but I think we know how to do it. I think we know how to do this uh, care for each other, this speaking up for ourselves. I think when um, the, the invite was so simple, two lines, as we read at the start, uh, it's for us to share, share our story, which I think a lot of people read it to speak for ourselves um, and to hear how other people um, are getting on. Uh, and I think that's uh, how people read that was we're going to support each other, you know, and being 
you know, asked one of our trans um, participants, or the, the trans women that came along, um, how do you know that we need to approach First Nations people um, first? Because we were like, oh, we noticed who, who isn't in the room. Um, and she was, because we know, you know, uh, we know that we are complex people uh, and our lived experience isn't visible to other people. So we know that not to assume what First Nations people need and we need to approach them because they're already doing a lot of work to just exist, you know, and just find their own joy. Uh, so we're not, we shouldn't be waiting for people to come to us. We should be approaching them. Yeah, There's I think... The that comes with being from the margins that you have a huger um, complexity, complex understanding of human suffering and human being and oppression that... Um, you're going to bring that compassion to every interaction that you have. And yeah, definitely. we really brought that into the room. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, yeah, um, when it comes to, like, yeah, the kind of sentiments of, like, how colonisation kind of, you know, intercepts um, and repeats itself in different organising circles or, yeah, in social movements can be really difficult, you know, when it's, like, divide and conquer, where people, sometimes interpersonal politics can be hard to navigate, particularly when it comes to, like, yeah, trying to share struggle um, and work together with values. But, yeah, I think always approaching it with the lens of understanding of, yeah, we are on stolen land here and that a lot of what we do is needs to be in, yeah, in collaboration with the owners of this land, the custodians of this land. and In a dialogue, right? Yeah, definitely. In a dialogue. I, I think um, what, what really was one of the things that came up is um, you know, we, we each of us have internalised a white gaze. So for us to, um, you know, throw that off, there's a lot of work to be done. And you mentioned divide and conquer, but I think a lot of the way that the master's house works is to get us to internalise their rules and their uh, assumptions and their norms. And so for us to try and take up more space and for us to um, learn how to unlearn this stuff together uh, and, and also, like, just to you know, to notice it in our own experiences in our everyday and then call it out in a way that is legitimate. I mean, the blind spots of the white gaze um, we carry as well. I'll give you a quick example. Um, there's some folks in the Greens, you know, talking about anti-politics and how Labor and Liberal as support for them is and the unions is, is tragically, you know, um, mm. uh, falling in the last couple of decades. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, "Yo, people of color have not trusted politics for a long time." Yeah, definitely. <laughs> um, you're not you're not speaking fast. And it was only when I heard that out loud with this lens of coming from this women of color caucus, I'm like, "Ah, oh, okay." All those like things that I felt in my body when people try to speak fast and it's not quite right, instead of just like tamping them down or you know um, pushing them away, I was like, "What is that about?" oh, it's because you've been in Parliament for too long and your electoral politics is taking over your sense of what the community wants. Yeah, definitely. So, I think that's an important yeah. point. I'm, I'm so sorry, Hung. We are just about to wrap up, but, you know, from a lot of what I hear, oh. um, it's just about, yeah, it, it sounds like it's about making sure that, you know, it's not just about what can I do as an individual, um, but also, yeah, coming together. Who is already fighting for the things that we are fighting for? How can we collaborate? I think it's a really important way. Um, if you want to just, yeah, tell people if they do want to show up, uh, how can they do that? Yeah, if you want to find your um, new non-binary and women of colour besties, you can text me, Hung, on 0401 560 820. 
so that we can make sure that you're catered for. And text me anyway because there's um, events now happening in Brisbane, in New South Wales, uh, and also in future in um, so uh, yeah, my number again zero four zero one five six zero eight two zero. Thanks so much for having me. No worries at all. Thank you so much for your time. See ya. See ya. And that was Hung, who chatted to us about the Non-Binary Women of Colour Caucus happening today from 6 to 9pm, um, about, yeah, sharing experiences of what it's like in activism and politics and struggle with one another. What's taking place in Palestine is horrendous. The people of Gaza who have survived ethnic cleansing, three wars and a 16-year siege are now facing the biggest attacks ever mounted against them. This will only stop if governments like ours demand that it stop. Here are some ways that you can keep yourself informed and involved. Listen in to Palestine Remembered every Saturday morning at 9.30am or listen to the podcast. Join the APAN mailing list at apan.org.au for updates, news about actions you can get involved in and where you can donate to provide humanitarian assistance. Listen to other news and current affairs programs on 3CR that also cover Palestine. The oppression of the Palestinian people has been going on for 75 years. It has to stop. You can be part of making that happen by staying informed and active. APAN is a proud supporter of 3CR. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.45 in the morning and we are joined by Mohammed Helmi, who is a community organizer and who is speaking with us about the development of an open letter from a wide range of individuals and organizations in Victoria's Muslim community to boycott this year's Premier's Iftar in the face of Victorian government inaction in response to Israel's genocidal siege on Gaza. As of yesterday, there have been widespread calls within the Victorian and New South Wales Muslim communities to boycott both Labor Party Premier's Ramadan events and prominent organisations, including the Australian National Imams Council and Islamic Council of Victoria, have both publicly declined to attend. Good morning, Mohammed. Good morning, Priya. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, I appreciate you making the time, and I understand that an immense amount of work from uh, grassroots activists in the Muslim community has gone into this. So I thought maybe we could start with a bit of context, talking about the significance of both fasting and breaking this fast with the sunset iftar meal during Ramadan and the particular weight that Ramadan this year is holding for Muslims around the world that are bearing witness to Israel's genocidal siege on Gaza. Yeah, sure. Um, so, uh, as many people would know, fasting during Ramadan is one of the fast pillars of Islam. It's obligatory for other Muslims, with some exceptions. And um, it serves as a time of self-discipline, spiritual reflection, and heightened devotion to uh, uh, Allah, the the, God, uh, the Creator. And by abstaining from food, drink, uh, and other physical needs from dawn to sunset, Muslims aim to develop empathy for the less fortunate and make an endeavor to make our hearts more receptive to the pains of others. So that's a very important aspect of Ramadan. We've gone through many Ramadans, though, with Gaza under siege, many. And Israel has bombed Gaza almost every Ramadan. So it's not the first time mm. that we see a Ramadan with bombing. The difference is here is the sheer size of of this live-streamed genocide. 
And I think Ramadan will come this year with a deep connection with how Gazans are feeling. And, and to me, it comes with a renewed commitment to social justice. Yeah, I I appreciate that correction there as well, because, of course, um, unfortunately, Ramadan has been a time where, uh, yeah, the Israeli occupation has tended to intensify its, Absolutely. yeah, yeah, its, its stranglehold on Gaza. So you've been involved in grassroots organizing with other Victorian Muslims to call for a boycott of the Premier's iftar this year, referring to the Labour Party's apathy uh, at all levels of government towards the live stream genocide of the Palestinian people. So can you tell us about some of the conversations that you've been having with other members of the Victorian Muslim community that led to the decision to collectively call for a boycott of the meal? Yeah, absolutely. And and I want to start by just stressing that this is indeed a grassroots movement. So while most media has actually gone to the Islamic Council of Victoria yesterday, um, Islamic Council of Victoria actually did not see the letter until it became public. It's purely a grassroots movement of um, uh, Muslims and pro-Palestinians who are not happy with the current situation. In fact, I would say we dragged in pig bodies, some of them, kicking and screaming um, into this campaign uh, to make our voices heard. And, you know, my God, we did make our voices heard. So we had an avalanche of support for the letter, um, the support across all Muslim sects. We wanted to leave no stone unturned to say that, for example, Shia came in, all sects of Muslims are represented. We have now 150 organizations as of this morning who have signed the letter. Some of um, some of the messages I received um, from some of the supporters actually made, brought tears to my eye. The messages, solidarity, resiluteness, and unity around the letter. Um, and the, the letter, I guess, some of the discussion that has been had is about uh, recognition of inaction, discussion of highlighted frustration of the Labour Party's perceived indifference at all levels of government towards the, what's happening in Gaza. And, and this perceived apathy that we refer, refer to in the letter, especially in the face of what has been described as a live stream genocide, has, I think, moved the community to take a stance. The p- people are also, um, there is a shared sense of grief and solidarity about what's happening. Um, there is also a desire for authentic representation of the Muslim community. The decision to boycott stems from this broader dissatisfaction with the lack of political representation and a feeling that the government action or lack of it really do not reflect the community's values and, and concerns, particularly around the Palestinian uh, mm. And also, I guess, a discussion of moral and ethical responsibility towards what's happening um, a conversation revolved around things like the moral and, and ethical responsibility of the community to respond to injustice, and, and a consensus uh, was that the, attending the iftar uh, under the current circumstances would contradict the spirit of Ramadan and the community's commitment to social justice. Yeah. So we, we took a strategic boycott to send a message, a strong message. But by the way, not only to the premier. Uh, and and the Labour Party widely, but actually also to Muslim big bodies as well. So we were actually, and, and I said to Adeline, the close friend of mine, we're not only uh, lobbying um, the government, we're lobbying you the, and other big bodies within the Muslim community to, uh, to take a stronger stance. Mm. And... I mean, this is uh, this is a, a very clear line in the sand as well, uh, you know, about the 
the way that political parties uh, can sort of launder their images through selective association, um, you know, with with groups of people, in this case, the Muslim community, by uh, holding the iftar event and pretending that things are, you know, all nice uh, without actually attending to the very serious concerns that, uh, you know, not just Muslims have raised um across the time that we have witnessed this escalation of the siege on Gaza. So have you received a response to this action that you've taken from the Premier's office yet? Because I understand that they're still planning on holding this year's iftar. Um, and are there any conditions under which the call for boycott might be reversed, you know, such as actions you might want the Victorian government to take uh, to express some tangible solidarity with Palestine? Um, so there has been no response. Uh, in, in fact, um, the only response I saw was on the age uh, when the letter leaked a little bit earlier um, on Wednesday night, and um, and basically the uh, the premier responded to the questions from the age, saying that well we're going to hold it far anyway, regardless, and we're just going to talk to. Uh, the big bodies. So it's kind of like we're not going to talk to you people on the street. You know, we're, we're just going to talk to your big bodies and essentially dismiss the letter. Since then, though, the letter has, um, uh, like, we were talking 70 people at the time. Now we've got 150 organizations. I don't think there is any organizations left. So the Premier is going to struggle to find people unless they, they go for a hire a Muslim with a beard to attend kind of campaign. Uh, but there is. I don't think we're gonna. They've got anybody left to um, uh, to invite. So the, the the letter stated in terms of would we um, is there any conditions that we would go? No, number one, I think that the negotiations generally we would kind of entrust it with the Islamic Council of Victoria as a Muslim community. But of course, as a general Palestinian activist um, that work with a, a much broader uh, community, obviously the Islamic Council of Victoria does not represent them. So the, what the letter stated is that what we want is what the Greens have asked for in Parliament, which is that memorandum of understanding with Israeli defence to be terminated immediately. And we want her to make a clear statement of condemnation of the atrocities ha- happening in Gaza. So that's what we want. And if, if, if that happens, then there may be grounds to say, OK, let's then, um, uh, you know, attend the, um, uh, the iftar and... and uh, if the you know if the community if there is the community accepted and of course I, I don't speak on behalf of the community and I I, um, I only speak on behalf mm. of the campaign if you like um, whether the iftar goes ahead or not it's up to the premier but mm. we are determined to try our best to stop it from happening under the current conditions by reaching out to all Muslim organisations. Mm. And it'll be a very strange iftar indeed if uh, there are no Muslims there. So. Uh, yeah. And um, I wanted to turn to, to one more thing before we wrap up. So uh, even though, of course, not all Palestinians are Muslim, I wanted to zoom out and ask about how the normalization of Islamophobia in Western nations, including this settler colony, has impacted mainstream depictions of Israel's war on and siege of Gaza. And I was wondering if, just to, to wrap up, you could speak to the persistence of this issue and how you've seen it manifest over the past few months, both in the valuation of Palestinian lives and in the experience of the diaspora Muslim community in Melbourne. Sure. So I, I think, my, my personal feeling is that um, what underpins and it's common to Islamophobia, treatment of um, indigenous Australians and treatment of Palestinians in Palestine. What underpins all of that and is common is racism. People of color 
are not seen as worthy of the same life as white people. They're seen as less human, the lands can be taken, the culture needs to be improved, and so on. So this underpins, in my view, and is common across um, across the sea. You can see, for example, Palestinians are treated by the media as a monolith. Uh, the fact that they are Muslims, Christian, nationalists, secularists, atheists within the Palestinian people is completely dismissed. Um, and in terms of what we've experienced, obviously Muslims have been sub- subjected to Islamophobia for many years now, mm. probably or you know decades, perhaps. And um, you know we see it in the form of biased media portrayals. Um, we see it in undermining the Palestinian humanity. Um, we see it in, in terms of increased hostility and discrimination. Uh, the Muslim community in Melbourne um, has faced heightened hostility and discrimination as a direct consequence of mainstream um, of, of mainstream of Islamophobic sentiment. In fact, since the seventh of October as well, the Islamophobic Islamophobia register has seen a 13-fold increase in the number of um, of incidences of uh, Islamophobic incidences, and unfortunately, most of them are against um, Muslim women because they're visually Muslim. Um, there is a sense of silencing of voices as well. There is a noticeable silencing of Palestinian and Muslim vo- uh, voices, both in media and public discourse. Um, uh, the silencing extends to social media, as you're well aware, uh, with shadow banning and so on, um, uh, and even academic discussions and mm. pro-Palestinian, pro-Palestinian stances. In fact, we've also seen um, ABC reporters dismissed for the coverage of the uh, of the Gaza uh, um, problem. Yeah. Um, but under all of that, I guess there is um, there is an, there is an expression of solidarity with Palestine, including. The, the peaceful protest and, and advocacy efforts are sometimes met with suspicion and hostility uh, rooted in Islamophobic prejudices. But at the end, uh, I think that movement, the Muslim community and the wider uh, uh, pro-Palestine movement are resolute. Um, and we will push ahead with what we believe is a, is a, ju- is a just, uh, just cause. Yeah, and I mean... Something uh, that I've been thinking about uh, on the other side of this is uh, on that line of solidarity um, and I guess the greater visibility of the importance of interfaith solidarity with Palestine is um, how beautiful it's been to hear Arabic spoken in public and to hear, um, you know, prayer as part of, of protests. And so I just wanted to thank you again for making the time to, to speak with us this morning, Mohammed. Of course. And that was community organizer Mohammed Helmi, who spoke with us about the development of an open letter from a wide range of individuals and organizations in Victoria's Muslim community to boycott this year's Premier's Iftar in the face of Victorian government inaction in response to Israel's genocidal siege on Gaza. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. 
We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. is part of our everyday lives, including when we buy something, use a service, have a job, or rent a house. The law can be used to help protect and support families when there is violence in the home or disputes over parenting arrangements. Sometimes we might need to understand the law to navigate specific government systems like Centrelink, getting a residency visa, or if we come into contact with the police. Community legal centres provide free, quality legal advice and assistance to help people with everyday legal problems. We focus on working with people who are experiencing disadvantage, such as financial hardship, family violence, homelessness and discrimination. Community legal centres are independent, non-government organisations and can be found across Victoria and Australia. If you're experiencing a legal problem, your local community legal centre may be able to help. To find a community legal centre near you, visit the Federation of Community Legal Centres Victoria at www.fclc.org.au. A 3CR supporter. And you're joining 3CR Thursday Breakfast at 8am. And next up we have Monica who is a unionist and member for Australian Service uh, Union for Palestine and has worked in community and social services coming up to 10 years now. And they joined us to talk about the unprotected industrial action and walkout of work for Palestine last Thursday on the 22nd. Thanks so much for joining us here today, Monica. No problem. Hi. Hi. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you for making the time. Um, I know it was such an important yeah, such an important action. And yeah, maybe we just wanted to start off with, you know, why strike and why particularly ASU for Palestine and social community workers? <laughs> sure. Um, so ASU for Palestine has, uh, we've been kind of organising since the genocide started, you know, since since late October, we've been active in, in a lot of workplace organising, um, in the Sunday rallies, in other actions and rallies, um, you know, down at the docks, the Zim, um, the Zim pickets and lots of different things. But this particular strike came about, I guess, from... So Australian Services Union covers workers in the community and not-for-profit um, sector and, you know, we were getting really frustrated with our workplaces silence on what's happening in Gaza and we work in workplaces that, you know, are about social justice, they're about equality, they're about ending violence um, and they often do speak up on social issues. So, for instance, in the, the Voice campaign, you know, a lot of these organisations were quite active um, for the yes um, vote, um, but they've been completely silent on, on Gaza and so a few different orgs had... We tried different things like writing to our um, boards and CEOs. Um, you know, we'd bring it up at staff meetings and we were always told, you know, no, it's not a workplace issue. Go and do your activism in your own time. Um, <laughs> this is nothing to do with the work we do, which I just find astounding. Um, you know, for me personally, I've worked in um, family violence and gender-based gender violence for um, a long time and, 
you know, to have organisations that are supposedly feminist and about women's um, safety to not speak up about the absolute atrocities that are happening to women and children in Gaza is just astounding. So that was the basis of us <laughs> taking um, strike action. It really came from the community legal um, centre workers and then um, it kind of became broader and more about social and community service workers as well. Um, and so, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you. I think it yeah, really helps lay it out and definitely what a dichotomy it is. And I really also wanted to speak to you as a social worker myself. Um, we have like the ASW code of ethics, which is so clear and so strong in theory. Yeah. Um, and particularly the social justice section, which, you know, really advocates for changes to social systems that preserve inequalities, you know, opposes violations to all human rights and affirms civil and political rights. And yeah. the list is endless. It is written in our actual code of ethics that we are yeah. meant to do this inside our work, outside as well. And... Yeah, I'm wondering why you think this dichotomy continues to take place when you're you're completely right that you have we have gender, you know, Palestine. There's so many so many things involved here, um, but yeah, there's there's gender, there is disability. It's a mass disabling event. Um, yeah. The list is endless, but yeah, I'm I'm wondering how how the hell could social <laughs> workers and social sectors that work to support you know, uh, yeah, in gender, in, in disability and mental health, yet I uh, mm. yet to say anything about a genocide that is continuing to affect millions of people across the globe, but particularly people in Gaza and the West Bank. Yeah, no, look, I <laughs> don't need the answer. And, and also in human rights, or, you know, like this is the greatest human rights, um, abuse of human rights we've seen, like in my lifetime, in, our, in all our lifetimes probably. Um, I think like maybe a lot of the smaller, I know that a lot of smaller orgs um, are worried about funding. So they're funded through, sometimes through like Zionist um, funding bodies, but yeah. also... I guess through government funding and, you know, both state and federal labour governments right now are pretty much backing Israel. So I think, like, that's a lot to do with it, not being uh, being afraid to, like, lose funding. You know, the community sector is really underfunded, as we know. Um, yeah, I mean, that might be part of it. I don't think that's an excuse, obviously. Um, you know, I think that we should be... Um, yeah, we should be speaking up that, you know, those sorts of things. If enough if enough organisations spoke up, then, you know, they can't cut funding for everyone, surely. Yeah, 100%. I think, <laughs> yeah, I think it's really important to, yeah, for listeners to, yeah, I, I'm sure they, a lot of us do understand that kind of landscape, but, you know, it is sometimes a lot about funding and being under the throes of capitalism, but so, so yeah. often it's also... <laughs> also about so much saviorism like we want to be the organization that will fund this money and we will take this to where we deem worthy and we will have yeah. eligibility criteria as opposed to like working together and yeah. I guess on that point as well um, I sadly couldn't attend the strike but I know that the speeches were really powerful that's what I heard from a lot of people that attended so I'm wondering you know when it did come to the speeches when people were talking and uh, I yeah, I, I'm wondering what your sense of like the energy in the room was and what people were kind of like feeling and saying. 
Um, yeah, the speeches are amazing. Look, I have to say that I was one of the speakers <laughs> that I was seeing, so I was a bit distracted. But all the all the speeches were amazing. We had two really amazing um, community lawyers, um, Shifra and Haz, um, and. Paz is a Palestinian um, woman and lawyer, um, and Shifra is an anti-Zionist um, Jewish woman and lawyer, and yet their speeches were very, really powerful. And, you know, they talked about similar things to what I've said about, you know, that we come to this work, to do this work because we care about values. We work in the community sector because um, we want to make a difference in the world. So to just have this absolute refusal from our orgs to, to say anything is really just enraging. Um, yeah, the, the rally itself was much bigger than we thought. You know, there, I think there was estimated 500 people there. It was just such an amazing electric atmosphere. We had Uncle Ehab from the Sydney Intifada who actually drove through the streets with renegade sounds on loudspeaker, calling people to walk out of work and join us, which <laughs> just made me cry. Like, I was crying when that was happening. It was just so beautiful. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was massive, and it really shows that, you know, if you call something like this, um, people will come. People people came. It is it is risky. It's, it's unprotected strike um, action. In Australia, you can't strike on the grounds of kind of social issues. You can only go on strike if you're in um, pay negotiations. So it wasn't a legal strike. <laughs> um, you know, and people participated in that in whatever way they can. You know, some people may have taken leave for the afternoon, some people went back after the rally and just took a long lunch and others, you know, actually just went on strike. So, yeah, it was, it was a really amazing day and I think it really shows that um, that this needs to happen more, that, you know, that we can refuse to be complicit in business as usual while, you know, there's a genocide happening and hopefully more, um, yeah, more industries start doing that and particularly it would be great if the industries that actually have an impact on the Israeli economy could yes. start taking this kind of action as well. Yeah, 100%. I think, yeah, definitely on that point, it's um, it's funny that, you know, we are expected to go to work and not talk about these things, particularly in yeah. helping professions that advocate for social justice and, you know, tearing down oppressive systems, which are apparently all around us within our organisations, and yet we have to be silent. And what you said about, like, the power in numbers, I'm really interested in, like, you know, from a unionist kind of perspective, to take unprotected industrial action, yes, sometimes can be... Um, yeah, it can be a risk, but I'm wondering what you think about, like, you know, what would you say to somebody if they were worried about striking or they're like, I don't know if I can participate in this. What are the ways that I can participate? Um, yeah, so the, what we were saying to people before the strike was really you need to kind of make that assessment in your own workplace. Um, and, you know, if you have like a, a whole heap of people in your workplace that are prepared to walk out, then, you know, you're pretty safe because, you know, they're not going to sack, you know, even one person, just sacking one person is a lot of work for for an organisation in terms of like rehiring and advertising and that kind of stuff. So, But there is safety in, in numbers. So if you can get a, um, a group in your workplace, that's even better. There is power in numbers. Um, and I think with this action as well, the other thing that we were saying to people was it's going to look pretty bad for an all to kind of fire someone over <laughs> over this. Yeah. Um, and yeah, we haven't heard any backlash that's happened since. It's a week ago now and we haven't heard of any backlash. But, 
you know, there are other ways you can do. Like, partly it was symbolic as well. Like, I'm not sure how many people kind of actually just walked out of work and didn't take leave. Like, I think a fair few people did, but, you know, as I said before, people were creative about it. You know, you could take time in lieu or take the afternoon off for sick leave. One um, person wrote an amazing letter to their email to their um, boss saying they had to take sick leave because the genocide was making them sick. So, Incredible. Yeah, it's pretty creative <laughs> around it. Yeah, that, um, it's it's truthful. We, you know, we have anger and rage and we're working in organizations that should be advocating with us, not against us. And, you know, I Mon, just for lastly, just to wrap up, was there anything else that you would like to, you know, share with our listeners about maybe a future strike or, yeah, any sentiments that you wanted to leave? Um, no, if you're a union member, get involved with Unionists of Palestine. We're doing lots of amazing workplace organising. Um, there's a few things coming up. that Actually, this morning, there's like a Hillary Clinton protest. She's not actually in Melbourne. She's appearing by Zoom. But that's at the Grand Hyatt this morning. So you've got to get down there and <laughs> protest her. <laughs> yep. Um, yeah, we're doing lots of really great organising in workplaces and in our communities. And yeah. Find us on Instagram and get involved. Amazing. Thank you so much, Monica, for your time. <laughs> really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. And that was Monica, who is a unionist and member for ASU for Palestine, who has worked in community and social services for up to 10 years. And they spoke to us about the unprotected industrial action and walk out of work last Thursday, the 22nd. And just one thing to add, you know, if you're feeling like taking some action today, the student strike for Palestine is happening today at 2 p.m. outside the state library. Um, students are stepping up. This is uni and school students and um, are walking out of classes. They are doing something that is incredibly important to send a message that um, nothing is more important than stopping this genocide. Um so people who are securely employed, especially if you're employed in uh, the education sector, please consider heading out there and supporting students as well. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Slavery is back. Welcome to a place where private business profit from a captive labor force, yet pennies are spent on medical services to a population in which the indigenous, the poor and the mentally ill are overrepresented. Where isolation, humiliation and degradation are facts of life. Welcome to prison. It depends who's telling the story, I suppose. The prisoners would have one view, the people who work in the prison system would have another, and I think it's up to people to decide uh, you know, where, where the truth is. Give government propaganda and the media spin doctors the flick. And check out Doin' Time for news, views and tunes on prison issues from Guantanamo Bay to Christmas Island to prisons and detention centres everywhere. Every Monday at 4pm on your community radio 3CR. We are still fired up and we're still talking about revolution. On the 14th of February 2024, Victoria's Truth-Telling Commission, UROC, released an issues paper on investigating systemic injustice experienced by First Peoples in economic life in so-called Australia. Today, we're joined by Karapmara and Gundich Mara, traditional owner, 
and Yurok Justice Commissioner Travis Lovett to discuss historic and current economic injustices experienced by First Nations people in so-called Australia and some of the ways the Commission seeks to identify solutions. Commissioner Lovett maintains a strong connection with his country and community and culture and holds a deep knowledge of the history of First Peoples in Victoria. Welcome back, Commissioner Lovett. We're so happy to have you today. Yeah, thanks very much. Appreciate yes. the opportunity to come. Yeah, um, well, welcome. Yeah, welcome back. And I wanted to ground my first question in First Peoples histories. I think it's really important that Yurok um, makes this connection between histories prior to colonisation with current issues. And as we know, a lot of colonial governments like to pretend that history started with them. So I wanted to ask, um, First Nations people lived in prosperity for many thousands of years. What did economies look like prior to colonisation? Yeah, really great question. Um, And first I'll acknowledge um, as part of our laws and customs and those traditions that you're referring to, uh, and acknowledge country. So just acknowledge country. I pay my respects to the uh, Rundri people of the Kulin Nation, recognise that I'm on their country. Uh, and also uh, my own connection as a proud Gunijamara Karamara man is introduced a little bit earlier. Um, it's great to be here today, as I said a bit earlier. But, but to the question, you know, before before European invasion, First Peoples, you know, we're independent. We had um, governed by collective decision-making processes. Uh, we shared kinship, language, culture and tradition. First Peoples also belonged to uh, and were custodians of country defined areas, all governed by LORE. Um, that's our laws and customs. First Peoples also, we have sustainable development, uh, sustainable practices, sorry, uh, and economies for tens of thousands of years. Um, these were based on connection to country, uh, land and water. Uh, coming together for ceremony, knowledge transfer. We had sophisticated trade routes, trading medicine, for instance, uh, healing, uh, trading tools, food, animal skins, grasses, etc. Um, this was central to traditional ways of life, uh, and this was destroyed uh, by colonisation. We have to understand that in, in a modern in a modern society, we think about economy around um, dollars or money and so forth. Uh, but our, our people um, obviously didn't have money, but we had things that we would trade and come together, as I said before, for ceremony, uh, practices, uh, and so forth as well. So very sophisticated, uh, proud Gwinijamara man. We also had... Um, um, you know, our uh, our aquaculture system um, uh, as well, you know, um, farming eels and fish and so forth as well. Uh, that's been World Heritage recognised as well. So sustainable practices that we would also be able to um, um, come together for ceremony, feed everybody, but also, again, share knowledge, um, trade um, uh, and, and so forth as well. Really important. Very complex systems, but really important that there was a way of life. You can't live on, a, on an area... Uh, um, uh, for thousands of years without having um, these um, um, practices in place uh, as well. Yeah, thank you so much, Commissioner Lovett. And although I use the word history to describe that, I want to acknowledge that many of these practices aren't relegated to history and have actually survived and persisted despite the ongoing harms of colonisation. And, you know, 
could be reinstated. Um, yeah, that's a really good with... point. I mean, and, and, and traditional owners across the state uh, are, um, you know, are elevating those practices and, um, and rejuvenating those practices. Uh, you know, again, it's a really important point you make. It's not that these practices are lost, but there was also forcible policies yeah. that removed us and stopped us from being able to talk language, share culture, knowledge, pass on traditions as well, elevating our role uh, of our elders and respected people who were knowledge holders uh, and who are knowledge holders continually uh, to pass on that knowledge to our people um, so they can thrive. Yeah. So just leading on from that a bit, could you describe some of the tactics used during colonisation to decimate this way of life and disrupt those um, sustainable and really powerful systems that were in place prior? Yeah, so, I mean, that, uh, that's, that was the purpose of colonisation, was about our land, right? Very rich, very rich land. Um, um, they knew also we had a deep connection and ongoing connection to that place. That's why, why colonisation, they come for the land, they come for the water. Um, the theft of land was achieved through a range of mechanisms and strategies, though, including the destruction of culture, our language, and our efforts to eliminate First Peoples through assimilation and violence, including massacres. We have to reiterate that this is the true history of Victoria. Massacres did happen here in Victoria. Colonial laws as well. They were imposed on First Peoples, not only imposed, but enforced. Enforced on our people... Um, we're also, uh, um, we were forced off our country, you know, forced onto reserves and missions um, where um, our people's lives were controlled um, and cultural practices and spirituality, as I said before, language is suppressed and forbidden, forbidden to be spoken. And if you spoke it and you got caught, there was ramifications for that. Um, when the missions and lands were found to be valuable, though, after moving us on there, Laws were created to remove First Peoples, particularly of mixed race, forcing them to assimilate in societies as well, um, where they were further, uh, where our people further faced racism, exclusion, and ultimately further discrimination. These laws also facilitated, you know, first um, forcible removal uh, of children and their families. And, and, and one of the, the I guess, the uh, more known uh, policies uh, of, of the time or advocacy things is around the stolen generation. Um, there's an unbroken line of injustice stemming from colonisation to today. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah, as we know, a lot of these harms persist. You know, we saw um, in the report, in a report released for 2021-2022 that the rate of out-of-home care for First Nations children has gone up um, 7% since 2018, which is yeah. really, really horrifying. Um, and just linking this all into current economic injustices, can you detail some of these current economic injustices experienced by First Peoples and, yeah, describe a bit more about how they link to these historic crimes? Yeah, yeah, a really good question, actually. Um, so I guess, the you know, the systemic economic injustices still experienced today by um, uh, my people um, at present are directly linked to the actions of the state, you know, the ongoing impact of colonisation, as I said before. Theft of land, removal of, of peoples from their country, prohibitions on movement, forced labour and stolen wages. Uh, just some of the practices that have created the intergenerational trauma and kept our people ultimately in intergenerational poverty. 
those harms continue to affect our peoples today, you know, the economic position of us um, and all, all aspects of our well-being as well. The data supports this as well. This is not just, you know, anecdotal. This is not just Aboriginal people just saying stuff. The data supports this. First peoples earn less and are less likely to be employed or less likely to hold high positions in the workforce. Uh, in current times, you know, first peoples continue to be um, denied economic development opportunities um, to benefit from resources from our country. That's, again, it comes back to the disconnection from country, moving us, forcibly removing us from our lands and our waterways. Um, Yuruk is uh, looking to understand how uh, colonisation also further disrupted our people's economies, uh, economic injustice for our people. Um, barriers also are looking into barriers to achieving um, economic prosperity and equity. Our people have always fought for it to be, to be um, treated equally, equity, uh, with non-Aboriginal people. Um, and we're looking to uh, seek solutions from our people as well through these submissions. Yeah, uh, so submissions of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you've outlined some really important points um, that support why the Yuruk Justice Commission is looking into economic um, uh, injustices experienced by First Peoples. Uh, My next question is a bit about treaty. I was wondering, could you describe some of the possibilities for the inquiry to inform Yurok's overall contribution to the treaty process in Victoria? Yep, yep, yep. I guess, uh, well, I mean, outlined, you know, how our now letters patent of Yudok um, is to support the treaty making process between the state of Victoria and First Peoples, including the identification of, um, um, of matters to be, you know, included, potentially included in, in treaty or treaty negotiations. Our recommendation, uh, we're working really hard to, um, um, get, I guess, um, you know, hear from people about the, the, the barriers. Uh, but also um, we'll be looking for solutions, but also we'll make our recommendations um, through um, um, to government and the assembly for them to pursue through the treaty uh, treaty process. Um, there's a critical part here, uh, uh, the process here in Victoria. We don't want to make any... Um, we, we don't want the final recommendations to also just sit on the shelf. Um, so we want them um, to lead uh, real change for our people, and I'm confident... Uh, that the recommendations that uh, ultimately we will make uh, when we form them uh, will will contribute positively to the treaty uh, process and negotiating um, uh, really good outcomes uh, for a new relationship uh, for our people and the state of Victoria to be able to move forward together. Yeah, and I think the grassroots aspect of this uh, inquiry is really important to that treaty process and... I think it's really great that Yoruk is, yes, holding that central when it comes to recommendations. So on that note, who should make a submission to the inquiry? Because the inquiry is open to the public to make submissions. So who should be making a submission? And what kind of information is going to be useful um, when it comes to, yeah, hearing all of those contributions in court? Yeah, so all Victorians can make a submission to you, look. Well, clearly, we obviously are uh, asking our people to come forward and uh, and share um, their stories and their, um, um, their you know, um, 
what they want to see for the future as well, what have they been through, but also what they want to see for the future as well. So, um, you know, I urge all your listeners uh, and everyone's society um, to contribute to our historic process, which is Youth Justice Commission. Um, we have an issues paper as well uh, up on our website, uh, Economic Prosperity. Um, so I encourage people to jump on our website and have a look at that. Um, but again, individuals and organisations can make a submission specifically on the topic or they can make a submission on any really systemic injustice experienced by First Peoples in Victoria. We are also keen um, and have heard, but we are also keen to hear stories that show diversity, strength and resistance of First Peoples as well. Um, and we're encouraging um, non-Aboriginal people as well um, who, to come forward and, and share um, their uh uh, knowledge uh, and stories as well. Um, and we've had uh, many of families come forward uh, and individuals come forward to share about um, some of the things that uh, um, their family have contributed, um, sometimes positively to colonisation, but also some of the negative impacts as well uh, that their families have contributed to as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, really important to acknowledge that we all have some hand in this, um, whether we're on the you know receiving end of oppression and injustice or, um, yeah, participate in this colonial state. So thank you so much, Commissioner Travis awesome. Lovett. Can I make a couple of other comments? Can I make a couple yeah, of other yeah. comments before we jump off? Anything you want to leave yeah. us with? Also as well, just in relation to the previous question, you know, we've got extensive support available to, to uh, our people as well who want to make a decision. Uh, we have truth receivers as well that are spread throughout the state of Victoria, taking people's truths and working with people as well. Uh, free independent legal advice. Um, social emotional well-being support as well. We recognise that it's a deep, uh, uh, an important part of, of who we are as people, but also supporting our people through some of the um, the, the real injustices um, that they've that they've continued to experience. Again, just reiterating that um, um, look on our website as well. But we do have an end date. We have an end date, so um, don't miss out on the opportunity to have your say as well. It yeah. does help us inform the recommendations that we make back to the government and for the First People's Assembly to be able to negotiate um, the recommendations that we recommend um, through the treaty process as well. Yeah, absolutely. So important. And we're going to include all those details in our show notes and pe so people can find it and be linked directly. Thank you so much for joining us, Commissioner Lovett. Um, we love to have you on the show. Great. Thanks for the opportunity and um, hello, everyone, and um, happy to have an all a deadly day. You too. means for now. Bye. Um, so we just heard from Kerup Mara and Gundich Mara traditional owner and Yurok Justice Commissioner Travis Lovett. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.